Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. We have another exciting episode as part of our Cardio Oncology series. Today, we are thrilled to discuss the important topic of thromboembolic disease in cardio oncology. And so without further ado, I will kick it off by introducing our team. For today's episode, we have one of our Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology series chairs, Dr. Giselle Soero Ebreo, who is a cardiology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital with a long-standing clinical and research interest in cardio oncology. Giselle, hello. Hi, everyone. It is such a pleasure to be part of this cardio-oncology series and introduce our field lead for this interesting episode, Dr. Sahil Ajunkawa, who is a third-year resident and incoming chief at Rutgers University, New Jersey Medical School. He's also a member of our Cardio Nurse Academy. It's been so fun to work alongside with you after our days at Rutgers. Welcome, Sahil. Thank you so much, Giselle. I'm so thrilled to be joining this episode. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of learning from Dr. Joshua Levinson. Dr. Levinson is the Associate Director of the Cardiology Fellowship and an Assistant Professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. His interests include cardio-oncology and cardiac imaging, and he is also a leader in quality and patient safety improvement at UPMC. Dr. Levinson, it is such an honor to have you with us today. The honor is mine. I'm really pleased to be invited, and I've known many of you for some time, and I've just been looking forward to this so much, really, for the past few months. So thank you for having me. Thank you for being here with us. And to start, Dr. Levinson, we hope you will help us learn from one of our patients seen at the Cardionex Clinic. Venus Stacys is a 52-year-old woman with a history of asthma and heart failure will reduce LV ejection fraction of 30% due to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. She presented with shortness of breath and was found to have a subsegmental PE of the right lower lobe of the lung, and she had recently also noticed a lump for her breast and unfortunately was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. This is a frequently encountered clinical scenario in about 20% of unprovoked thromboembolic events can be related to an underlying malignancy. So Dr. Levinson, can you discuss with us the incidence and main manifestations of thromboembolic events, both venous and arterial, in patients that have an active malignancy and whether there is any high-risk association with specific cancer subtypes? In terms of the incidence of venous thromboembolic disease in cancer patients, I think we could look back to the original score that validated the Corona score from the New England Journal, and they actually took patients who were more on the outpatient side and randomized them to a direct oral anticoagulant or placebo. And the incidence for patients who had treatment with just a placebo was roughly 10% of patients who had active cancer ended up having a venous thromboembolic event if they went to look for the VTE. So many patients actually have subclinical asymptomatic venous thromboembolic events, but obviously TE, as we could call it, is predominantly a symptomatic lower extremity DVT with pain and swelling in the lower extremity or chest pain associated with uh, pulmonary embolism or shortness of breath associated with pulmonary embolism. 
It's worth noting that the main manifestations of thromboembolic disease are not always the scariest manifestation of thromboembolic disease. And I like to remind people, and I think it's really important that we focus on this, that the number one preventable cause of death for all hospitalized patients, no matter whether we're talking about patients with cancer or otherwise, remains a thromboembolic event. And so the ability to prevent and treat thromboembolic events uh, is certainly very high on my priority list. In terms of the question of whether there's a high-risk association with certain specific cancer subtypes, um, I did think about this a little bit in, over the last few weeks as we are preparing just to both reminisce on my clinical experiences, but also review the literature. Predominantly patients with more metastatic disease and patients who are receiving chemotherapy, I believe, are more likely to have venous or arterial thromboembolic events. It is rare to have patients with acute myelogenous leukemia or patients that have very low platelet counts to develop venous thromboembolic events. So for example, patients who are actively getting a stem cell transplant whose platelets are very, very low, that would be considered quite rare. But patients who have active inflammation going on with chemotherapy, it's quite high. I think of multiple myeloma as a very common disease, especially those on, for example, proteasome inhibitors. Patients who are on lenalidomide are very high burden of getting VTE events. But obviously, all patients could get it. But the more limited stage cancers, for example, very early breast cancer, very early prostate cancer, very early melanoma, I would consider those very rare, actually, to get a DVT or PE so this patient who is relatively young, 52, who is otherwise well, if she did not have the cardiomyopathy, I would have considered early stage breast cancer really to be a very low risk early on before treatment to have developed a DBT or PE. Thank you for that very helpful background. As we know, cancer-associated thrombosis is linked to several factors related to the patient, cancer, and cancer treatment. Dr. Levinson, can you share with us some of the main risk factors to keep in mind and if there are any clinical biomarkers that can help us identify patients who are at higher risk of developing thrombotic complications? It's really interesting you mentioned the term clinical biomarker because I don't think there are great serologic biomarkers that predict developing thrombotic complications. But the larger idea of a clinical biomarker as a concept of a patient phenotype or a clinical history, I think, is much more helpful. So patients who have quite sedentary lifestyle, who are now immobilized, I think are much higher risk. And we can think of that sort of common sense-wise. Those who are deconditioned, those who are actively getting chemotherapy, as I mentioned earlier, in general, are much higher risk to be both deconditioned, but then also to have ongoing inflammation. And certain chemotherapies uh, that we could review certainly increase the risk of developing a DVT or a PE. The main serologic biomarker that we often talk about is a D-dimer. I think that that is still relatively limited in its utility. But as we could talk about in the future, there are some reasonable trials out there that support the use of D-dimer to know when it's okay to reduce or peel back 
anticoagulation for patients who have a previous DVT or PE, and we'd like to remove their direct oral anticoagulant, for example. And if their D-dimer is still quite elevated, then it may be worrisome that there's still ongoing risk. The other way to think about this, and we may get there later on in the conversation, is to use validated risk scores to help identify patients who are at high risk. The traditional Corona score, I think, is one of the great ways to really assess a patient. And that score includes both the platelet count. So if the platelet count is very high, over 350, or if the patient has a very high white count or a BMI over 35. And then certain types of cancers, for example, gastric, pancreas, really get higher risk of VTE events. And then those such as lung, lymphoma, or other gynecologic or GU cancers have mildly increased risk. But as you can see here, for example, in our patient, breast is not considered a high uh, risk for DVT or PE. Going back to our patient, how do you approach choosing the optimal type and duration of anticoagulation to treat this acute PE from mystasis? And also something comes up all the time is we're making these decisions of anticoagulation at the same time that these patients multidisciplinary care team is planning for surgeries, like in her case, a lumpectomy and a plan for chemotherapy in the next few months. So what are also some of the considerations for her anticoagulation treatment plan in the perioperative setting that is coming up? I love this question, and I love it because the answer has changed even in the last few years. Traditionally, we would anticoagulate patients with systemic anticoagulation using mostly heparin initially in the treatment plan for a patient who develops DVT or PE. And then we would have to transition then to Coumadin. I think numerous trials have shown that low molecular weight heparins, traditionally in the U.S., that would be anoxaparin or also called Lovenox, has been shown to be superior to Coumadin. And so patients who have cancer and had a VTE, we would always use low molecular weight heparin unless proven otherwise. In the past five years or so, we have many trials that have compared low molecular weight heparins to direct oral anticoagulants. And all of the trials have shown equivalent outcomes for VTE events, so thrombosis events, and with rare exception, relatively equivalent bleeding events, such that the entire field has really moved to feeling comfortable using direct oral anticoagulants for almost all cancers. The one exception would be truly gastric cancers, where there's a strong signal that direct oral anticoagulants have higher bleeding risks for patients predominantly with gastric cancers. And so I generally avoid DOACs in patients with gastric cancers or those where there's a large tumor burden in the stomach or duodenum, even potentially in the small bowel. But beyond that, most other cancers, I will traditionally use a direct or anticoagulant. I am somewhat biased by the pharmacokinetics rather than the true randomized trial data to say that I think that Pixaban is probably a superior direct or anticoagulant because it is a twice-daily medication. And I think there's 
better data pharmacokinetic-wise to show that we are anticoagulating patients steadily throughout the day, there is some concern that using rivaroxaban as a once-a-day drug gets you supra-therapeutic in the first half of the day and sub-therapeutic in the latter half of the 24-hour period. And so there is a little bit of concern that rivaroxaban is not preferred for some patients. That being said, all of the randomized trial data would support using rivaroxaban, idoxaban, or apixaban for almost all cancer patients. Dubigatrian, which was one of the earliest direct oral anticoagulant, has fallen out of favor. I think for most of the field, whether it's cancer associated or not, and that's predominantly due to a systematically higher burden of GI and other bleeding events with the use of dabigatrin, and so I generally avoid that. I think our field in general has not used a lot of adoxaban, but I think the outcome data is quite good with that drug, and many insurances really prefer it, and so I would not feel worried if, if that was the preferred treatment. There's wonderful RCTs out there showing that's a safe alternative to low molecular weight heparins. So in short, really any DOAC is preferred. Obviously, the caveats for that include the patient being able to take pills and the patient having relatively normal renal function. Obviously, in patients who are contraindicated to take DOACs, then it's a larger conversation. The other question here is duration of anticoagulation for acute PE. In general, treatment for at least three months would be considered standard of care. And many patients are going to be on treatment for their cancer. And as such, often we will be thinking about this more in terms of six to 12 months. Any patient who has active cancer, who is ongoing treatment with radiation or chemotherapy or expected high risk of VTE, I would consider treating them throughout that period and then several months afterwards. But the traditional idea of three to six months, and then for many patients, we would consider getting a D-dimer. And obviously, patient-shared decision-making is very important to make sure both the provider and the patient are comfortable with the decision on how long to stay on anticoagulation. Obviously, if patients are considered low risk and have low bleeding risk and really are doing well from a cancer standpoint, it would be very different than if a patient has progressive cancer and is going to be having ongoing chemotherapy. The larger question that you mentioned about the patient really needing to have a lumpectomy and is now getting either neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy and other immunotherapies is fascinating and has to be individualized. Every patient and every surgery is completely different. And the number one tenant for all of cardio-oncology is ongoing conversation between the oncologist, the cardiologist, whether it's surgical oncologist, PCP, everyone involved, family, friends, you name it. But it's really important to have an ongoing conversation about what the plan's going to be. We commonly run into this scenario where there is an acute PE and the patient needs to have surgery in the next few weeks or months. I think if the decision here is really to treat the patient for a few months, generally a few months of treatment for an acute PE is 
normally more than enough. And so the general idea would be to talk with both the oncologist and the surgical oncologist about continuing anticoagulation up to a few days before surgery. Ideally, if the patient is going to be getting a very limited surgery, then the idea of holding surgery for a day or two, for me, is generally a low-risk issue. And so we could hold DOAC for a day or two and restart it a day after. And that perioperative period is not very low risk, but it's relatively low. For patients who need to have a very large mastectomy or some other reconstruction surgery, bleeding risk is a major issue and hematoma in the surgical site is very high risk. And so that has to be discussed with the patient and the oncologist about what they're willing to really understand their bleeding risk. So for example, we would often have patients on directal or anticoagulants and then transition them to heparin drips to limit the amount of time off anticoagulation up to the point of maybe the night before surgery. And then if it's a very large, for example, mastectomy with reconstruction, we may need to be off anticoagulation for many days and then go on very low dose, sort of prophylactic dose heparin. And so that's how we normally handle it. And our outcomes are quite good in this, but it has to be really individualized with those patients. There are some patients who are high enough risk that we will tell the patient that they should not go get their surgery and that we have to push off their surgery until their PE is treated. And by treatment here, we mean repeating their CT scan, for example, or if it's a DVT, you know, repeating their ultrasound to make sure that the PE has actually resolved rather than just assuming that it's been treated. But that's quite rare. And obviously, we could talk about that at length. Thanks so much, Dr. Levinson. And clearly, as we're learning, this is a really complex subject, and we really appreciate your demystification of it. We've sort of touched about this earlier, but in recent years, risk assessment models such as the Grana and the Vienna CAT scores have been introduced to identify high-risk patients for developing recurrent thrombotic events. Can you tell us a little bit more about the utility of the scores and what are the options for anticoagulation for more of a long-term thromboprophylaxis? Thanks for the question. The Vienna score, I'll be honest, is not one that I traditionally use. The Corona score is very commonly referenced and I think utilized. As we've learned for patients, for example, in other fields, the longer people go out of training, the more likely the attending is to just know what that score would be without having to look it up. And I think we have found that there are gestalt approaches to patients with cancer that you look at their history and sort of know that they're high risk for developing a DVT or a PE. But for those who are new to the field, especially those in training, we really need a way to teach others what those risk factors are. And that's where these scoring systems have come about. In general, if you're on the cardiology side, it's very rare that we're actually asked to make the decision on treating patients with anticoagulants for prophylaxis. Uh, and so it's, I'll be honest, quite rare that I'm using the score to actually start prophylactic anticoagulation. But there are some patients who perhaps have fallen through the cracks from their oncologist that we would then reach out back to them. 
But I think it is important for many internal medicine residents or cardiology fellows who are learning about this to understand that these patients, especially when they're a cancer patient who then gets admitted to the hospital, we can estimate what their risk over the next two and a half months would be for a DVT or PE. The scoring system, as we talked about, includes understanding the cancer type. So stomach and pancreas are very high-risk DBT and PE cancer types. And then you get at least one point for lung, lymphoma, gynecologic, bladder, or testicular cancers. And then you also get points if your platelet count is high, if your hemoglobin level is low, or if your white count is very high, or you have obesity as defined by BMI over 35. So you count up those points and you get a score. Patients who have no risk factors have less than 1% incidence of a DVT or PE over the ensuing two and a half months. For those who have two or one point, the incidence is roughly 2%. And those who have more than three points, their incidence of a DVT or PE is roughly 7%. So 7% is not very high in some respects, but that's almost one out of 10 patients to just be able to identify them as having a DVT or PE. And so traditionally, the oncology world has been able to identify these patients and then start patients on this per their protocol. What's very unique about the oncology field, which I think is different than the cardio-oncology field, is that oncologists are lucky, and in general, they're allowed to sub-sub-sub-specialize. So oncologists learn everything, and then they decide they're only going to treat breast cancer, or they're only going to treat lymphoma or leukemia. And so then they can get very good at predicting their individual cancer type, whereas the cardio-oncology field, the cardiologists have to learn every type of cancer and every type of treatment for the cancer and every type of cardiovascular complication from those cancer treatments and the cancers themselves. So it can get very confusing. And so honestly, an open conversation with the oncologists about it is always valuable. But I do like returning back to the Corona score, for example, um, and utilizing it to help understand DVT and PE risk. The other thing to remind ourselves is that there's great data that anticoagulation can be used to prevent DVT and PE, both in the inpatient and the outpatient setting. And the other thing that should make many cardiologists happy is that there's great data that aspirin in the form of generally 81 milligram, sometimes 325, is a great prophylactic treatment to really prevent DVT or PE. Most cardiologists, I believe, don't think of aspirin as a anticoagulant, but there's wonderful data showing that aspirin compared to low molecular weight heparin or direct oral anticoagulant whether it's in the cardio-oncology field or the orthopedic field, really all perioperative literature except for trauma shows aspirin is quite valuable in being a prophylactic agent for DVT and PE. And so I think a lot of high-risk patients who are already on aspirin because of their concomitant cardiovascular disease, we can feel somewhat comfortable that they're being prophylaxed. That is a really helpful practical context for some of these newer tools that are available to us. Dr. Levinson, two months later, while on a DOAC, our patient, Ms. Stacey's, presents with left leg swelling and was found to have an acute DVT in the left femoral vein. 
Can you discuss your approach to managing this recurrent thrombotic event, particularly while already on an oral anticoagulant? So Miss Stacy's clearly has bad luck or there's something still wrong in her body. And I normally empathize with patients first and foremost, and then get back to the science at hand to really figure out what's going on and how we're going to prevent this patient from having recurrent thrombotic events. When a patient is on an oral anticoagulant and then develops another DBT or PE here, the first thing I would ask is whether the patient is actually taking their anticoagulant. Many patients forget, cannot pay for it, or just have trouble being compliant, whether it's due to trouble taking the drug at the recommended time or whether it is having trouble taking it twice daily. But in general, cost can be a major barrier for many patients. So if the patient is not compliant and they have a VTE event, then it's somewhat easy to know at least what we could do from a at least textbook answer. But the pragmatics here are often related to insurance barriers. And so if the patient really can't afford it, then our answer is clear that we have to switch to something they can afford. If the patient was truly taking their anticoagulant and they were taking it the way it was prescribed, then we have to talk about whether to switch them to a different agent. Generally, that would be first line from a direct oral anticoagulant to another direct oral anticoagulant. That's one option. Or switch them to a low molecular weight heparin. My general philosophy here is that patients who have treatment with a good direct or anticoagulant dose, who have continued DVT and PE events, should be switched to a low molecular weight heparin because the overwhelming history suggests that that has good data, that we know that's the tried and true compared to other historical controls. So I would traditionally switch them, for example, from a pixaban to anoxaparin in the U.S. And I would not use the one and a half mg per kg daily dose. I would always use the one mg per kg BID sub-Q dose because that really has the best evidence to get a therapeutic anticoagulant effect. I'll be honest with you, I've not had many patients over the years, but I've had a handful that have required the use of both low molecular weight heparin and aspirin and P2Y12 inhibitor because of recurrent venous and thromboembolic events. And those have generally been in patients who have widely metastatic active cancer and who continue to have truly impressive thrombotic events, for example, in their coronaries, in their carotid aortic events, and venous events. And so if patients are truly having sort of vascular catastrophe, often the use of antiplatelet agents and anticoagulants is needed. But most patients, we can get away with the use of a DOAC switch to lomulocalate heparin and or consider the addition of, I would say, low-dose aspirin or a P2Y12 inhibitor. The aspirin evidence is sort of my personal approach. It's not really in guidelines, but it is something that should be considered for those who really want to have extra protection. So that's how I think about it. It is rare for a patient with very limited stage breast cancer, for example, to have recurrent DVT or PE events. And so that should make one think about doing an otherwise strong hypercoagulable workup that could have been going on. So, you know, we always talk about Hickam's dictum and Occam's razor. 
Occam's razor would say that this is all related to cancer, but patients with hypercoagulability can get cancer. Patients with elevated lipoprotein A can get cancer. So don't forget that patients can have multiple diseases that cause their events here. Thank you so much for all that very helpful information, Dr. Levinson. Managing anticoagulation in patients with active malignancy, as you've mentioned, is something that can be very challenging for a billion of reasons. I'm going to ask you a loaded question, but what are your general thoughts and approach in scenarios when there's a high bleeding risk and you have a strong indication for anticoagulation? Some examples may include patients that have very severe and prolonged treatment-induced uh, pancytopenia, patients that we see with malignant pericardial effusions or metastatic brain lesion. Boy, you're really trying to put me on my toes here. My general thoughts are that I'm hoping someone else is on call when they ask me about these questions and that I can defer to someone else. These are very challenging situations when patients have VTE and high bleeding risk or have a history of VTE and then their platelets are dropping, for example, or they develop new metastatic brain lesions or malignant pericardial fusions. That being said, um, it's quite common. I, I wish I could tell you this doesn't come up, but it comes up all the time. And I think we have some literature out there. I think we have a lot more expert opinion and expert experiences on this. In terms of patients who develop chemotherapy-induced pancytopenia, there is some nice data out of colleagues in Texas on the use of thromboelastography to guide us on an understanding of whether patients who have thrombocytopenia, whether they are still hypercoagulable or hypocoagulable, so whether their bleeding risk is very high or the opposite. I think what they have found and, and what I generally use, one is to not consider any platelet count over 100 to be anything abnormal. And I rarely is ever get excited about a platelet count over 50. Once you're under 50, you have to be very cautious and thoughtful about the individual bleeding risk for the patient. In general, platelets under 20 should be strongly considered to be off all anticoagulants. And an individualized approach between 20 to 50 is important. For patients whose platelet counts are anticipated to drop below 50 or 20, you can prophylactically stop their anticoagulation. And that's commonly done in conjunction with the oncology team, for example, when they're getting high-dose chemotherapy for their standard treatments or for stem cell transplants. But many patients only have brief thrombocytopenia for a day or two, and that is quite predictable. And so the patient can take their anticoagulation and then hold it for a few days and simply restart it when it goes back above 50. In patients who have more prolonged thrombocytopenia due to, for example, leukemias or long-term effects from a stem cell transplant, then the likelihood is that they're going to be off anticoagulation for an extended time. In those patients, number one, use what you can to prevent DVT and PE. And that means the traditional idea of mobility and sequential compression devices, SCDs, for patients who are in the hospital. And for those who are out of the hospital, certainly mobility will be key. 
And so those are some of the common things that I think in general, we don't do a good job at systematically across the world to prevent DVT and PD. But when platelet counts are rising, we will often use subclinical doses, for example, start with prophylactic doses of anticoagulation with just 30 or 40 milligrams of heparin and make sure that they can tolerate that and then work our way up. Brain lesions are very interesting. One thing that I did not know that I've learned over the past few years working with my experts in melanoma is that, number one, there's a folklore that melanoma has extra bleeding compared to other tumor types when they metastasize to the brain. And so I think it's important to know that is not really true or evidence-based, but clearly any lesion that goes to the brain of any cancer type has the risk of bleeding. And so we will often continue anticoagulation, but have to have a discussion with the primary oncologist and generally either our neuro-oncology team or our neurosurgery team or both about what the bleeding risk truly is, the location, the size, and the surrounding tissue, for example, whether there's signs of small uh, hemorrhage. If patients are going to be getting radiation to that area, that may increase the bleeding risk. And so we will often decrease but not truly stop anticoagulation. Patients with primary brain tumors are at very high risk for VTE. Glioblastoma, for example, commonly causes patients to have very poor mobility and their DVT and PE risk goes very high. It's not clear to me whether that's from the mobility issue or whether commonly they're on treatments that impair VEGS, for example, Avastin, Bevacizumab, or otherwise, whether it's just the tumor. But I think it's important to recognize that patients are always high risk for bleeding and they're always high risk for DVT and PE. And we have to be willing to actually live with that uncomfortable state where the therapeutic window continues to shrink as the cancer progresses. But just because someone has a high bleeding risk doesn't mean that you should stop their treatment. Obviously, bleeding in the brain is probably the worst thing we could think of, but a preventable DVT or PE, in general, a PE is far worse than a transfusable bleed. And I think most of the literature would support that. The last question is about malignant pericardial effusions. In general, treat the pericardial fusion and restart the anticoagulation. The management of malignant pericardial fusions, I love talking about this topic. For patients who have truly hemorrhagic pericardial fusions from their malignancy, our local practice pattern differs actually depending on our thoracic surgeons and who gets called. And that's worth noting because that really shouldn't be the case, but it's true. So many of our interventionalists, if they get called, do a pericardiosynthesis, but then very quickly remove the pericardial catheter after drainage. The problem with that is for malignant pericardial fusions, the recurrence rate of the pericardial fusion can be as high as 50% if we just do a simple pericardiosynthesis. And so many of our oncologists and thoracic surgeons who manage our pericardial fusions move much earlier to a pericardial window, which allows us to have drainage into a different space and avoid the risk of tamponade. And that's generally favored by me and most cardiology colleagues locally. 
Another option is to put a pericardial catheter via a traditional pericardiocentesis, but leave the catheter in for an extended period of time, upwards of five to seven days. And that, we believe, probably causes some extra adhesions in the pericardium and may then reduce the incidence of a recurrent pericardial fusion from the cancer down to about 10%. But it does not eliminate it completely. But those are some things you can do that are modifiable in patients who have, for example, atrial fibrillation or a DVT and PE who really need to get back on anticoagulation. We should treat what we can treat and then get them back on their anticoagulation. And so those are some of the workarounds that I think we've learned over the years. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Levinson. As you importantly stated, it can often be a difficult balance to reconcile the risks and benefits of anticoagulation. With regards to our patient, on hospital day three, unfortunately, Ms. Stacy's had a sudden onset headache. An emergent CT of the head found an intraparenchymal cerebral hemorrhage, which, as you mentioned, is one of the feared complications of anticoagulation. The neurosurgery team recommends holding anticoagulation for at least four weeks due to the risk of rebleeding. What are the considerations in this scenario, and would the insertion of a device such as an IVC filter be recommended or appropriate? So once you mention an IVC filter, you know you're going to get some emotions out of me because IVC filters are, for most of us, the bane of our existence. They're something that's commonly used but have very little to no evidence that they're valuable or helpful to patients. That being said, I think that patients who have active DVT and PE burden and active bleeding, it is reasonable to put in a retrievable IVC filter with the acknowledgement that the patient should have anticoagulation restarted as soon as possible and the IVC filter removed as soon as possible, generally within four to six weeks. The scenario that you talked about in patient Ms. Stacy's who has a new PE and then within a day or two has an intraparenchymal hemorrhage and has a DVT is a great case to make that an IBC filter should be put in and then anticoagulation should be restarted as soon as possible. So her case is the rare case where I would say that is reasonable, but I see much more commonly we put in IVC filters for a risk of bleeding or a concern about a bruise. And then lo and behold, the IVC filter is still in five or 10 years later. And so that's why I think we all get quite worried about putting IVC filters in. So I think it is okay to put them in, but anyone who's listening to the podcast has to know that if they're putting the IVC filter in, they're on the hook for getting it out. And so many institutions have great quality improvement processes with their, for example, interventional radiology teams to track the IVC filter and make sure that it's removed. But I'll be honest, many do not. And then it's years later. And the longer the IVC filter is in, the more likely you are to find thrombotic burden on the filter, which is then procoagulable. So we've sort of taken something that's supposed to be helping us and are now finding a way for clots to then sit on the filter and then go down to the lungs, for example. You know, I rarely, if ever, recommend an IVC filter. We have had a few cases perioperatively like this where we have 
acknowledge that it's not something we want to do, but putting in an IVC filter perioperatively for someone who every time they go to surgery has a PE. You know, common sense is common sense. And if every time patient needs to go to the OR for their urologic cancer, and they're going to be very high risk to have bleeding in their bladder and they get PEs all the time, putting an IVC filter in to prevent sudden deaths is reasonable. But those should be that you keep track of them a couple times a year as opposed to common. So those are my thoughts on IVC filters. Well, that was a very interesting comment on very controversial topics in cardio-oncology. Great way to think about our another interesting case with a second patient, Mr. Arthur Yalcut. He is our 73-year-old male patient with a history of lung cancer. He's actively undergoing treatment. He also happens to have hypertension and hypoepidemia and presented to the Cardionerds Hospital for chest pain. He ended up having a STEMI and underwent PCI. Dr. Levinson, can you discuss your approach to arterial thrombotic events for patients with active malignancy and any relevant differences for treatment of arterial events compared to venous thrombotic events? And specifically, can you talk about any recommendations when we are faced with concomitant use of anticoagulation for cancer, but also the need for antiplatelets? for other conditions such as PCI or strokes. So this is a great case and scenario that you've given for our second patient, simply because it's so reflective of everyday patients we see in our cardio-oncology clinic, but more importantly, I think in regular everyday clinic and that we may not recognize our cardio-oncology patients. We know that patients with cardiovascular disease, and by that I traditionally mean atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease are at higher risk for getting recurrent cardiovascular events when they are treated for cancer in general. But men with prostate cancer are the prototypical example of accelerating that atherosclerotic risk. The way I think about this is that we are, quote unquote, mucking around with the hormones in the body in an unnatural way. And that truly dysregulates our lipid metabolism, our coagulation cascade, hypertension, obesity, you name it. We see it when patients are treated for prostate cancer. Often that's just lack of testosterone leading to secondary causes, but I do think there are direct mechanisms that we could talk about really on the microscopic level, but I don't know that we'll have time to today. The biggest thing for me is to recognize that arterial thrombotic events can be a sign of cardiovascular disease, meaning atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and could be a sign of dysfunction of the coagulation cascade and in some patients could be both. So patients like this are considered very high risk, and there are a number of papers, and there's great examples and the new cardiolonc guidelines out there for patients like this to recognize that we should be very proactive in managing and treating atherosclerotic risk factors in these patients. So in every patient that I see who has prostate cancer or truly any cancer, almost every one of them has a CT scan of their chest to look for burden of cancer. So what I will traditionally do is look to see whether they have a huge burden of atherosclerosis. Many patients with active cancer 
have a large burden of atherosclerotic disease in their coronaries and in their aorta. And that means that we should work hard to manage that risk. That generally means high-dose statin, treating their blood pressure. And then traditionally, if the visual coronary calcium score is very high, adding at least a baby aspirin. In patients with known coronary disease, then obviously you don't need to do that because they already have known coronary disease. But the traditional LDL goals for those patients are often more in that less than 70 range, but I generally treat them much more aggressively in this patient population to at least an LDL less than 55 or maybe now less than 50, because that has evidence that we're reducing cardiovascular disease. Now, the question that always comes up is, are we just talking about atherosclerotic events or are we talking about true coagulopathy or hypercoagulability? And I don't know that we honestly, in the real world, in the pragmatic approach, can differentiate that. But I do think that doing the basics very well will help us prevent modifiable arterial thrombotic events. There are some patients who I see who have simply a big clot sitting in their aorta and they have an active malignancy. And in those patients, I will look at their CT scan to see if there's a big area of atherosclerosis there. And in some patients, there truly isn't. And so that makes me more concerned that this is a disorder of their coagulation cascade that's directly related to their malignancy. In other words, there's neurohormonal dysregulation due to their cancer. And those patients are very high risk. And as long as they have active cancer, I would keep them on anticoagulation, generally with direct or anticoagulants. To that point, I did not mention, but it's worth knowing that in all cancer patients with arterial or venous thromboembolic disease, we often talk about treating patients with DOACs. And I think we traditionally don't treat them exactly the same way as what we're used to when we're treating with DOACs for atrial fibrillation. We commonly start, for example, five milligrams of apixaban for atrial fibrillation. But for a DVT or a PE or an arterial thrombus, we have to be much more aggressive. And I think many people forget to do the loading dose with at least 10 milligrams twice daily for generally a week or longer before you reduce the dose. And many people use Lovenox in the beginning and then switch to a DOAC. So that's how I think about these. So think about your traditional risk factors, lipid control, atherosclerotic burden, treat your preventable diseases. There are some patients who guidelines would say treatments for prostate cancer or other cancers are going to be very controversial and relatively contraindicated. For example, some VEGF TKIs or other endocrine therapies for prostate cancer, where there's almost a black box warning for patients who have coronary disease and need those treatments. And I don't think that that black box warning is actually really a black box warning. I think that's a sign for the oncologist to then refer to a cardiologist and hopefully cardiologue or someone with cardiologue knowledge to say, in general, the belief of we need to be aggressive about treating cardiovascular disease and aggressive in treating prostate cancer so that we can treat the cancer appropriately and not have preventable cardiovascular events. I think that philosophy, often what I'd call permissive cardiotoxicity, 
is a much preferable way than not treating the cancer and not treating the cardiovascular disease, which often is what's still going on around the world. So being aggressive in treating both diseases up front, managing those risks, I think is much preferable. That is a really valuable perspective, Dr. Levinson. Now, potentially for our most important question, we'd like to ask, what makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? I appreciate the pun. So I will say every day is quite shocking in cardio-oncology. But, you know, I think that cardio-oncology is a fabulous field. Every day is different. Every month or two, we get a new treatment that is off the presses from a randomized controlled trial that's now FDA approved. And it's really fun to see patients who otherwise would not be alive without some new novel treatment that is now responding to treatment um, and thus really surviving and thriving. So I love that I get to manage the cardiovascular risks in patients who do well. I am completely fascinated by the field of CHIP um, and these sort of shared genotypes and phenotypes of cancer and heart disease. I think that is going to be a fascinating field, but obviously is very new. And I think we'll have more to come from colleagues. And mostly I love working with patients, whether they are thriving and now considered a survivor from their cancer and their heart disease or not. It's just gratifying to be able to be a part of their lives. Uh, for those who've been able to come to our clinics or rotate on service, many of them we've known for, for years or, or longer. And for many, it's sort of family. And so to be able to, to know that they can rely on us and whether through patients doing well or not, we will be there for them, I think is really the most rewarding thing about the cardiowonk field. So I really encourage everyone to learn about it and to recognize that it is quite valuable. Wow, what a phenomenal discussion we just had. Thank you so much for a masterclass whirlwind tour on thromboembolic disease and cardio-oncology. Obviously, a really, really nuanced topic. So thank you so much, Dr. Levinson. Thank you so much, Sahil. And thank you so much, Giselle. This was a fabulous, fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all. Thank you, everyone. This was so awesome. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Tina Reddy. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and fourth year medical student at Tulane University. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.